I'm J-Mac. And I'm Jess. And this is the Loosely Coupled Podcast. All right, cool. So, gosh, another another week. Another week, another podcast. Yeah, week three now, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We had our days off a couple last week, but and I know we were going to try to record two last week, um, but it didn't happen. No. What happened in your life? Well, another day of uh, of not working for anybody except myself, which has been pretty fun. Um, just working on some some personal projects. Sweet. Uh, just yeah, really practicing kind of a an outside in approach in terms of like mocking up my uh, like mocking up a UI in Tailwind and Vue with just hard coded data, so that once I know exactly what I want. I then start, you know, I'll drop down a layer and a layer and a layer rather than yeah. writing my API first and then being like, well, shit, this doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah. No, that was that was always fun to kind of get in that flow, you know, that outside-in technique where you kind of really, it's almost like, you know, you'd kind of TDD the router and then you'd be in the controller and then the controller would lead to some kind of like, you know, database layer, which would lead to a mapper, you know, and it just... yeah as you kind of just ping-ponged around that system, what I thought was always really elegant is if you could kind of, obviously the goal is to go right back to the outside again. So you go outside, inside, back to outside. And in a way, in my mind, it was just like this perfect symmetrical circle, you know? Yeah. That's what really made me feel good about the code, you know? As programmers, we try to look for like this validation that the code that we're writing is like good. Yeah. And in a way, tests, tests for me kind of became that validation. It honestly wasn't so much about like tests or coverage. In a way, for me, kind of like that circle, like it felt complete with the tests. And that's why I think that's when testing really took hold is when it kind of became that validation that like the code is done as in, you know, shippable and works. Don't test everything, I'll be honest, but... When I do, I will admit the code feels more complete to me. Yeah. I like to write the tests that help me sleep at night. Sleep is good. And the tests that let me, you know, change things with confidence. So, yeah, if, I, if I've if i got code that I am scared of, te- of changing, then I realize, then that's when I know that I should have written a test for that. Let's circle back just for a second um, about the full-time thing. Like, just in a nutshell, like, what's the routine? Like, what's kind of like your daily setup to kind of keep you going on these projects since there's no, you know, boss or, or tickets or team or whatever? Um, I think a lot of it is passion. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really sort of just passionate about working on whatever I want to work on. I try and let myself just work on whatever feels right at the time rather than getting too deep with planning. Um I've also got, uh, I formed a business partnership with someone that's not a coder, who's kind of like working on the business side of things and working on ideas. So having someone that I'm still accountable to helps. Yeah, you got to have a pair. I think that's totally key. A pair, partner, whatever you want to call it. Like, Yeah. I, I really believe there has to be someone else. This is This is kind of getting into the human experience, like. You know, somewhere along the lines, there was some kind of quote, like, you know, nothing's real unless it's shared. I do like working on my own products, but a lot of the times when I do hit like a lull, 
or I do hit kind of an impasse with decision, or maybe I just don't have ideas of kind of what the next thing's going to be. Like that's where a partner or a pair uh, can really kind of help out, especially if they have like a complementary skill set. Yeah, and I mean, you can't always find, you know, a pair to do everything with, but I think you can you can have friends that kind of are with you on the journey a little bit. They might have their projects, you have your projects, but you can kind of bounce ideas off each other. Um, because when you're, when you're working a regular job, you've got colleagues. So anytime you run into something, you can ask for, you can bounce ideas off someone. And I think it's important to have that even when you work for yourself. Yeah, so... Last time we talked about the practice of formatting, of, of having code that's visually honest and uh, easy to approach, easy to read. So kind of staying on that note of, of approachable code and, and code that gives you these visual cues, right, and, and is welcoming, uh, let's talk about dead code. It's ominous. It is, yeah. Um, I think for me, like when I when I picked up the when I picked up the book, there were the first few chapters where, like when I read the, you know, the, the chapter names, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I know this, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll read through it, you know, um, but I'm but I'm waiting to get to some of the the more advanced ones. But without fail, every chapter where I thought, you know, you know, I know this, it was still super super helpful to just read through the whole thing, and it really made me aware of things that. Even things I might not have been consciously aware of, it just it reinforced a lot, and and so yeah, I've, it's kind of helped me not to judge some of these fundamental practices. That's so key in programming in general, and I'm glad that you said that because you know I, I do get that pushback, and I can definitely tell maybe you know that that's probably going through the minds of potential customers, potential readers, you know, as they're as they're maybe looking over the book is kind of like. Oh well, I, this is all fundamental. I know all this stuff, but I, I think as programmers, we have to be challenged to get back to the basics. Even even if some of these practices seem a bit basic, there's still value in them. And I mean, I say that as much for myself. Every couple years, there's a handful of programming books that I'll read again. And some of these books, honestly, at this point, I've read ten, twelve times now. And and some of these were the very first programming book. I read. So I think I even talk about this in the dead code um, chapter of base code, one that was recommended to me from a college TA. And honestly, it was probably one of the first programming books I read that wasn't like a college, you know, course book. But anyways, he recommended it, The Pragmatic Programmer. And I read it and it, it was full of these tips. Every chapter kind of had a tip or maybe even a few tips. Every few years when I do reread it, there'll be different tips in that book that stick out to me more. Yeah, so sometimes with with these these practices, you you know them and you you do them just by habit and you know that they're good, but sometimes you forget why you do it. And I think reminding yourself of of why it's actually important rather than just doing it because you do it, it can help you in other ways as well. Um and it just yeah, it just reminds you to take care and to to really think about the process of what you're doing. For sure. So let's talk about why dead code's important then. Yeah. Or at least kind of to the point of the practice, removing dead code is important. So should we talk about what dead code actually means for anyone that's not familiar with the term or can't guess it? Sure, yeah. So, so dead code uh, is basically code that is not executed. 
but it nonetheless uh, remains in your code base, and as such, it is a bit of a distraction, especially to readers. So it takes many shapes, but the point of all of it is that it basically rots your code base, and it, and it does this actually for a little bit more of a sociological reason than, than it does a uh, code reason. <laughs> like the code's not going to rot like the, the bits and bytes. Uh, you know, the compiler just ignores it, so who cares? Uh, but in the real world, it, it has an effect. And, and this is actually an academic theory which talks about broken windows. And it's kind of a uh, metaphor uh, that they use to kind of talk about disorder within a community. And, and the, the uh, analogy goes that, you know, basically if you have a car and it's left in, in kind of an urban area, uh, and if the car's, you know, fine and in good shape, then, you know, it's going to be okay. But once it suffers like a broken window, uh, then it's, it seems to demonstrate that the car is abandoned, no one cares, and it's rated decay, like, really, really escalates at that point. Like, it goes downhill quick. Like, you're going to come back in a few hours, and the thing's going to be on blocks. You can think about it the same thing, like an abandoned house. There's all sorts of analogies that kind of fit this broken windows theory, as it's commonly known. And I talk about it kind of in the book, and actually it, it was borrowed from the pragmatic programming because one of their tips was saying, fix bad designs, wrong decisions, and poor code when you see them. And so that's kind of what we're getting at with dead code here, is, is just don't live with it. Don't live with dead code. It's nasty. Remove it. Yeah, just on that, that broken windows thing, when other people see these things in your code, it sets a standard where they kind of like, well, the code's already got this, so there's no harm in me doing the same, the same sort of thing. Exactly. A another sort of uh, analogy I really like that kind of, yeah, that I can really relate to is if I get like a new phone or a new car or a new item of some sort, I, I care about it. Like, you know, like I look after it. I'm super, super careful not to get any scratches, not to drop it, anything like that. But the second it gets you know, a small bit of damage, a little scratch on the screen or a little nick, then it kind of then it, it sets the scene where I'm then, you know, I'm not as careful with it. I'll put it in my pocket with my keys or whatever it might be. And I think the same is true with code. And, and that's the whole point. When, when the code starts to show decay, let's call it, right? It's just, it goes back to just like we talked about in, in formatting. It starts to, in a way, become a little bit visually dishonest, not necessarily from its structure, but from a signal to noise ratio, if you will, right? Like it's just kind of clumsy. And going back to the pragmatic programmer, the, the tip, it, it looks like poor code, right? It just, it looks bad. And so you're going to be more inclined than as a new developer to eventually kind of succumb to that decay and unfortunately be part of it. So you got to be vigilant. You got to kill this stuff. You got to kill dead code when you see it. Yeah. A friend of mine actually called this, he actually, um, just for a little backstory, he, he came in as kind of a consultant, and he had worked at the company before, but he, so he kind of knew the code base. And they brought him in because we were kind of behind, and uh, we needed to work on this really big feature, and again, he knew the code base really well, so they brought him in, you know, just kind of this mercenary. And one of the first things he did, I remember looking at the PRs, and like the first three or four commits all just said Boy Scouting. Just Boy Scouting, Boy Scouting, Boy Scouting. I saw all these commits coming across, all these different branches. And I was like, what, what is this? You know, what is this hipster, you know, Boy Scouting thing you speak of? And uh, he told me, he said, hey, this is, I'm going through the code, I'm reviewing it, and I'm, I'm just leaving it better than I found it, which is kind of the, you know, kind of a, a Boy Scout 
motto. Yeah. And that's exactly what he was doing in the process of, of re-familiarizing himself with the code. Uh, he was removing, you know, dead code. He was removing these other pieces of code, which we should probably start talking about. <laughs> so one of the first forms of dead code is commented code. I mean, how often do you come across a big block of code and maybe three lines are actually executed and the rest is like all just a big, huge, like, you know, long block comment. Yeah, I think it's one of the first things we learn when we're programming that if we want to temporarily disable something from executing, you put a comment on it and then it won't execute. And I think that's fine. Um, I think it's it's part of the development approach is, yeah, you, you want to sort of experiment with something, try something different, so you comment it out. The, the problem is when you then leave that there and then even worse if you commit that to a repository. Yes, that should never, it should never remain. Like when you're hacking away, completely agree, it's fine. Like I understand in the real world how we all work and how we're just really trying to get something to work. Um, and that process can be a bit ugly. But to the point, you got you to gotta boy scout it. Yeah, it's really important to to go back in after you've, you know, you've kind of got it to a spot you're happy with to actually go in and fix all that stuff, all that stuff you've done. And like if you're using version control, obviously this can happen, uh, you know, as part of the commit process. Oh, yeah. So, you know, just make sure you never, ever, ever commit dead code. And I think one of the best ways you can do that is to never blindly just commit everything in your working directory. I think that's the biggest mistake people make. Oh, man. Preach. Preach. Absolutely right. So, yeah. So, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, like patch mode in, in Git. Like I said, you're preaching to the choir. You you talk about it. Tell us about it. Enlighten us. So, for anyone that's that's not familiar, I, I am very much a, a proponent of never, yeah, never blindly committing everything in your code base. If you use git add p which is sort for patch mode git goes into this interactive mode where it then it, it breaks your code into chunks and says do you want to stage this particular chunk and you can say yes you can say no you can say split it into even smaller chunks if it can because it'll sometimes group them together you can edit it if you want to actually you know change what's being committed and sometimes i'll do this if i'm trying to create like an atomic commit and I've kind of not done the work atomically, I'll go in and make sure that I'm only staging the exact right piece that I want to stage. Um, but the point is, is that you're, you're being very considered in the code that you're actually committing to, you know, to the repository, to the history of the code base and to what other people will see, anything that's outside of your working directory. Exactly. It's a wonderful little program that's actually built in to get this, this patch mode uh, you know, and it's just, it's super simple. It's command line. It's, you know, it's Y for yes, N for no, E for edit. S for split. It allows you to slow down and take that minute that, that we're really trying to encourage here to, to catch some of those commented outlines, to catch some of those, you know, debugging statements that you might have left in the logs or whatever, right? Sure, these don't see the light of day. Sure, the compiler doesn't, you know, look at those, they're immediately discarded by, by the interpreter or the parser or whatever, but humans see them. And, and to the whole thing for me, readability, like it's just, it's noisy, it's clumsy. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think we nailed it on commented code. Seems like we're pretty eye to eye on there. Let's, let's move on to some other stuff. There's another way that I'll, you know, sometimes, I don't know why, but sometimes I feel like <clears throat> commenting the code is 
it's too much work. I don't know whether it's because the block is so large or some other problem, but I'll wrap it in an if false, mm. which is, you know, potentially more problematic in terms of, you know, you can't always spot it as easily as commented code. Yeah, that one seems a bit more dangerous to me, but it's a good one because it leads us to some of the other forms of dead code, uh, which is unused code. This is probably not exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about a little bit more like unreachable code. Like deliberately making it unreachable. Yeah, exactly. Deliberately making the code unreachable. So that's that's an interesting approach. Um, I'm not saying it's a good approach, but I'm saying for some reason it's an approach I take. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> don't, don't do this at home, kids. But yeah, I think it's it is it is an approach though, and and to the point, it does lead to unreachable code. So so both unused code, you know, the variables that you don't end up using, um, maybe you had them temporarily, you know, while you again were hacking away, unreachable code, uh, code like the if false or whatever, or a loop that maybe never executes. Again, these are a little bit harder to spot than um, commented code because comments obviously very different syntax. Uh, you know, they're going to highlight differently in, in your IDE, probably. So they're very muted, and, and you kind of automatically can train yourself not to look at them. But yeah, these other two forms are probably a bit harder to spot, because they're going to still get the syntax highlighting. They're going to still get this formatting. So best way to spot some of these things are, are you know, static analysis. If, if your language supports that, I definitely recommend running it through that every now and then, see what it finds, because it's going to group these probably by these exact names, these unused code or unused variables uh, and unreachable blocks. Unreachable, yeah. Like, you know, I, I come across that one all the time because, you know, I want to see what something's doing earlier on, so I'll chuck in a return. And I think the great thing with, with JavaScript now is in my console, I always get a, an alert saying, you know, unreachable code after return statement. And I'm like, yep, I know that one. Thank you for reminding me there. <laughs> That's nice. I didn't know the console did that. I don't know whether it's the Firefox thing or whether it's something I've got enabled. I'm not sure, but yeah, I see it quite a lot with, with JavaScript. That's a good one. And my linters pick it up as well. Um, nice. But yeah, it's it's another one where I, I'll i chuck in those sort of returns as part of the hacking process because um, I'm not ready to like, you know, I want to just try it before it gets to the rest of it. So I'll chuck in a return or sometimes it's a die depending on the language. Mm-hmm. Um but again, it's it's one of those things that you've really got to make sure that then, you know, you don't just forget about it and leave it there or commit out, you know, commit all and, and it just ends up there. Yeah. I know it sounds like all this stuff's so simple and like, you know, duh, it, like I've got unreachable code. But again, in larger blocks of code, a, as you're hacking away, as multiple people are hacking away on a project, like... These things creep into the code. I, I know they seem simple and, and like they don't, but they do. They do, yeah. If you're the original author, try your best not even to introduce them. Uh, and, you know, if you're coming across new code, or even if it's not new code, even if it's your code, but it's just maybe, you know, a couple months old or whatever, run it through a static analyzer. See see what kicks out the other side. You know, run it through a linter and, and see if any of these things pop up and use that as a guide to Boy Scout, you know? Yeah. So um, there's there's one I act. It's kind of like unreachable code, uh, I guess technically, but but since writing base code, I, I've kind of broken out another section when I when I give um, this at talks and conferences. Uh, but it's like unnecessary syntax. Unnecessary syntax is, is is a form of unreachable code because it's it's not syntax that's ever really going to be used. Okay, tell me more about that. So I think the classic example 
is like a switch statement where you have returns inside of the case, but then you still have like a break statement underneath it because like our brains are just, you know, programming 101 like case and break, like must have this pairing. Or even honestly, like the default, uh, you know, case it never needs a break, right? So it's just... yeah. But again, our, our brains are kind of programmed <laughs> and trained to kind of always type that. But there's all sorts of other things too. Um, you know, I've come across people that have empty else blocks, but maybe they just think, you know, maybe again, as a, as a new developer, no big deal, but just, you know, one of those things where you're just logically in your head, you're thinking, okay, if else, I got my structure, I'm going to start coding, but I never really fill out that else block and it just kind of hangs out. On the topic of the the switch statements, um, I think it's actually one of the important things to do is if you deliberately don't have a return or a break and you want it to fall through, mm-hmm. that's when you should actually add a comment to say that it's deliberate. Ooh. And that's something that I think, yeah, I think I think that's really helpful because if you don't, if, if there's nothing there at all and it is going to fall through, that can happen by accident. So, yeah, having that little comment there that's saying it's deliberate, you know. Dictates why. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I'm a huge fan of languages that actually offer both. Um, I'm pretty sure Go. I know Go has default um, is actually to break. They've flipped it on its head, so it's default nature of a, of a switch inside of Go, or at least in the early versions of Go I haven't used in a while. But um, its default nature was to break, so you had to explicitly say fall through as its syntax. I like that. So I thought that that was really cool because... That's kind of programming. That, that's like a language in my mind that's centered again around like readability and developer happiness. Like, why am I having to put this syntax in? That's kind of the default behavior of what a case statement should do, which is just run this one case and not the next with all this like extra noisy syntax, right? So yeah, that's kind of the point of the whole thing. Don't leave this unnecessary syntax because again, you're, you're just kind of increasing that noise. So if you come across that and your language, you know, doesn't have some kind of syntax that is maybe an alternative way to write it that's maybe more clear, then yeah, maybe you can you can do the comment. But the best would be as if the language kind of offered both. Just like offering an if and an unless, right? I mean, we all think differently. Yeah. I mean, it's not even necessarily to some people. It's just some circumstances. It reads better. Yeah. Absolutely. Unless makes way more sense to me, like for some reason, than the classic or traditional if. Yeah, where you've got to chuck in the the negation in there, and you end up with, yeah, it's just harder to harder to read. Yeah, cool. So I think I think the final bit that I kind of mention um, in base code is abandoned code, and this one is probably the hardest form of dead code to spot because it's not something that is going to highlight, you know, like comments would. Uh, and it's not something the static analyzer is going to always pick up. It it might kind of guide you to it a little bit, but I don't think it's going to find it completely on its own. This this form of dead code, I think, takes a little bit of human kind of intuition. Yeah, especially if it's hidden behind, yeah, like a config flag that, you know, is not being set anywhere in that code there where, yeah, you don't know, what, you know, where this configuration is coming from. So you don't know whether this code's ever going to fire, so you just have to assume that it does. Yeah. So I think I think kind of just to give give a use case of like this abandoned code. Let's say you're running a promotion that gets toggled on and off by some kind of configuration, some kind of feature flag. So there's 
there's logic, you know, there's if statements, there's, there's methods um, that's in your code that potentially gets called and, and run and executed when these flags are on. So this code exists and it's all kind of calling each other, um, but it's really only happening when conditions are met, these very specific conditions. And these conditions are potentially temporal in nature, but now you got all this code in the system that it's calling each other and it's being used, but it's dynamic enough in nature where that static analysis probably isn't going to pick it up. And so it's a little bit hard to spot unless, again, you're kind of this human that can intuit about the machine and, and see, oh, well, we don't even sell these products anymore. Or, oh, well, we don't have, you know, super admin users anymore. Yeah, there's actually a, a really interesting technique you mention uh, in the book, which I think you got from another book, which is about tracer bullets. Oh, yeah. Another one from Pragmatic Programmer, tracer bullets. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good technique. Um, and just to explain it for anyone that, you know, doesn't doesn't know what a tracer bullet is. Um, to firstly discuss the analogy, a tracer bullet is obviously a bullet that, well, not obviously, but it is a bullet that's got, you know, some phosphorus so that you can see where it goes um, and you can you can basically follow it. So I think the, and the in the, the code analogy, you can put little bits of code, whether it's just a something that, that dumps out to a log file, something that sends you an email. It's just something that will raise a flag and say, hey, I've been executed. Um, and so you can then just leave that in your code, deploy it to production, leave it for, you know, a week or a month on, you know, whatever you feel sort of satisfied with. And if that flag never goes off, then chances are that it's it's probably, you know, something that is fine to remove. And I think you kind of need to do that when you're, when you're not the original author or when you don't know all the business rules and no one uh, does anymore because the person that wrote it has left. And if it's, if it's happening that rarely you can probably remove it and it's probably not the end of the world if, you know, it happens to, you know, have been important at some point. I think you really hit it, you know, on the head there. If you are the original author, it's it's just like the things before. You really have to make sure, you know, take the care when you're actually getting ready to commit this to be like, oh, you know what, I didn't end up using that flag. And, you know, that's probably going to be really confusing to to not me or even me in the future. But these are good strategies if you aren't the original author and you need to figure out, you know, is this really being run anymore? I had a boss at one point, things it was one of my early jobs, and we were trying to figure out if like these servers were kind of in use. And there was really no way to really determine if like who's still using these. We didn't even know, could we turn these things off? Like is this like, you know, the the CEO's billing system? Like I don't even know. Yeah. So we just kind of didn't know, and and it was funny, but even even kind of to the same point, if you're brave enough, and and I think our uh, our VP was uh, for for that group, but he was just like, turn it off and see if anybody calls. Like he was just like straight up, he would just like walk over and unplug a server. Like he was not afraid, and I guess maybe taught me, or I guess um, allowed me to be a little more, again, cavalier with with the approach of like. If it's dead code, just remove it. Like, because chances are it's it is truly dead code, and if it's not dead code, you're gonna find out a lot quicker of how it's actually being used in the real world than like going through thousands and thousands of lines of code potentially to to maybe have a half of an understanding. The other really great thing about uh, you know removing dead code for me at least is I find 
It's super satisfying when I submit a pull request that has more deletions than additions. Oh, yes. I think it was one of those jokes on like, you know, junior dev versus senior dev. And, you know, the junior dev was like the green bars of like plus 1,300 lines of code, you know, and it was like the negative red bar of like minus 13 lines of code. And then it was like senior dev was like the exact opposite. It was like they wrote 14 lines of code and like had removed or from my perspective, boy scouted 3,000 lines of code. Sometimes it happens because you need to remove a feature. Other times it happens because you've optimized something. But in any case where you're deleting code, I feel pretty satisfied. Yeah. At the end of the day, it goes into the old joke, you know, the best code is no code. Which is, is, kind, of, is kind of funny, you know, that we're, we're programmers, but, you know, the, the, sometimes the funnest things are deleting the code and not writing the code. Exactly. I mean, it, it can get the same amount of that completeness or satisfaction, you know, and again, getting back to something more philosophical, but I, I put it in my slides every now and then when I kind of give talks on this, but going into the, that famous kind of art quote that, you know, perfection is achieved not when there's more to add, but when there's nothing more to take away. It goes to show that, well, sure, there's so many other like refactors and there's so many other classes and objects we could make and we could bolt on all this different these different forms of architecture, but when you kind of achieve that bare bones solution and it works, uh, but has these human aspects of readability, there, there's kind of, you kind of can just sit back and be like, ah, that's nice. That's refreshing. What, what can you remove, you know? And I think even with, with uh, like I've seen this with UI design, you know, I've, I've watched some of like Steve Shoger's refactoring UI videos. Oh yeah. And oftentimes he's, he's removing so much stuff. And he's still achieving the exact same functionality, but with with less. He's doing more with less, and things become clearer, less noisy. Um, I think it applies to so many parts of life. Yeah, less is more. I think that's one of those underlying, unspoken aspects of of some of these practices. So, so I think that's pretty good for dead code. I think I think we hit it on the nose there. Hopefully, um, that inspires. Uh, everyone to kind of pay a little more attention to the code, remove some of these dead code aspects, maybe run some static analysis uh, on it and, and just kind of clean it up. See, see how you feel afterwards, hopefully, hopefully better. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's okay to use, you know, to, to use dead code when you're hacking away, but just make sure you don't commit it and don't let it live in the code base. Yeah. I like that one. Never commit dead code. I like that promise to yourself. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that kind of wraps this up next time going to talk about nested code yeah i'm looking forward to it i think this is uh this is one of the ones when i was like yeah i really wish more people kind of followed these practices so yeah i can't wait to talk about it yeah so to your point earlier this this was probably the last of kind of the the easier practices i think they start getting a, a little more progressive in kind of their their complexity their intricacy so yeah nested code nested code will be a fun one so. definitely all right sounds good all right, you have a good week. You too. See you next time. See ya. Show notes for this episode can be found at looselycoupledpodcast.com slash two.